Hello, and welcome to the 50th of our podcasts on your GCSE History Revision. From this point on, all of the podcasts are going to be about the new specification. That is, if you're doing your exam in the summer of 2018. So, today we're going to talk about towns in Norman England. The first thing you have to get your head around when we're talking about towns is to remember that above all else, William is a businessman. The original impetus to invade England was, after all, financial. It's a rich area, and that's why he wants the throne. And so he encourages the growth of towns. Why? Well, a town is basically a large concentration of people. That makes it an economic engine, a place where business is done, a place where trade is done. Therefore, it is a place where tax revenue can be raised. The bigger the town, the more tax there is which the king can claim, and the richer the king becomes. Remember, running a kingdom is an expensive business. It requires a great deal of revenue, and it's nice to have a bit of profit left over at the end, and towns allow you to do that. So, how much did towns grow in the Norman period? Well, if we have a look at the Doomsday Book, which is still our best source of evidence for this period, we can see that 21 new towns were founded during the reign of William I. That's a fairly significant increase over the amount of towns there were at the start of the Norman period. So what was the mechanism that led to the founding of these towns? We know why the king is happy to have more towns, but why do they end up where they are? Well, that is a question that's got a couple of different answers depending on which way you come at it. First, there are the ideas that towns grow like a pearl around a speck of grit inside an oyster. Something in the area requires a larger population, so a town grows around it. The two obvious examples here are castles and cathedrals. As we know, the Normans build castles up and down the country to help with the defence of the realm and to put down all these various rebellions. And each of those castles requires supplies, it requires staff, it requires people to maintain the garrison. Therefore, you get a town growing around it. A castle might be built in a place where there's already a small village, and then it will grow substantially. I mean, we've got some examples of Bury St. Edmunds, for example, where they knock down some of the original Anglo-Saxon housing in order to extend the castle, but then the city itself grows further and further outwards. Cathedrals are a slightly different case, which we'll come to when we talk about Durham in a bit more detail in a later episode. Suffice to say that the building of a cathedral is a major undertaking. It requires a huge number of people, and it requires a great deal of effort and investment. And that in and of itself stimulates the local economy and tends to grow towns. Then we have markets. Now, markets are part of the whole trade idea, and trade leads to the growth of towns in a number of different ways. First off, there is the idea of markets, the idea that people from the surrounding area bring in their goods to sell. In order to have a market, or the souped-up and slightly more exaggerated version of a market, which is the fair, like Scarborough Fair... These require a grant from the king. 
they require permission, if you like. The idea is they have a franchise, a thing which allows the local townsmen and noblemen uh, to be able to run it. These are called a grant, right? And we know that this happens because in the Norman period, William I alone issues 2,800 grants for people to hold markets and fairs. So we know that these are leading to a number of growths of various places. Bury St Edmunds would be another good example. Then there are some specific trades. One that always surprises people when we talk about it is salt. Never underestimate the importance of salt during the medieval period. Remember, there is no refrigeration. There is no ice. The only way you can preserve foodstuffs, especially fish from the coast if you're wanting it to get inland, or meat if you're wanting to ship it from the highland and upland areas where you've been grazing your cattle, is to salt it. So as a preservative, salt is very, very important. Also as seasoning for cooking. Therefore, the salt trade is responsible for the growth of a number of towns around Norman England. If you want an example of that, I suggest the one you use is Droitwich, where we know for a fact that there are at least three people who pay their taxes to the king in the form of salt. The next most important trade that people need to remember is metalwork. And really, there's two types of metal here. There's the obvious one that everybody knows, which is iron. And iron is necessary to make armour, to make shields, to make weapons, to make uh, cinches for harnesses, to make ploughs, all the other bits. But it's fairly obvious that iron is a major, major industry. The second one, which people don't tend to think about, is lead. And lead is very important for building work. And it's important for building work because it's what's used on these massive cathedrals in order to seal the roofs so that they don't leak. It's also used for some of the major castles and manor houses and things of that ilk. So lead becomes a very important form of industry as well. So you've got lead and you've got iron. Basically, it doesn't matter which one of those is prevalent in a particular town, the town will grow. Normally, you can spot a town that grows because of the metal trade because it's near woodland. And the reason it needs to be near woodland is because they need lots of wood to burn in the furnaces to smelt the iron or melt the lead. Uh, A good example of that would be Gloucester, which uses the wood from the Forest of Dean in order to run their blast furnaces. Then there's wool. Wool is one of those weird little things that people take for granted, and it's massively important throughout the whole medieval period, from the Normans through to Edward I, through right the way through the Wars of the Roses. The reasons why wool is important should be fairly obvious, because it's the main method of making clothes. What's particularly important is that... During the Norman period, the wool trade increases so much in England that they start to export it. Now remember, the Normans regard themselves as French. Therefore, they are doing a lot of trade between England and Normandy. It should therefore come as no surprise to you if I was to say that most of the new towns that are founded are founded in the south, because that is where the trade is. Remember, we talked a long, long time ago about the idea of this shift 
in trade from the north to the south. Previously, most of England's trade was with the Scandinavian countries and with the low countries. But with the coming of the Normans, that focus shifts south to Normandy. So you get the growth of these towns in the south, these port towns, where the wool is exported to the continent. And in return, they bring back things which are not native to Britain. The perfect example here being, of course, wine. The British climate is not well suited to growing wine and grapes in this particular period. So they have to bring their wine in. And the Normans, they love their wine. So a lot of the port towns on the south coast, and I'm thinking here of things like Bristol and London. Don't forget London, although it doesn't look as though it's on the coast, is a port town with the Thames. So those cities grow those towns, sorry, grow a great deal because of the wool trade. What do these towns look like? Well, they're very cramped, and the reason they're cramped is because they are almost all, without exception, walled. And everything that is constructed is then constructed within those walls. So there is very little space, there is very little movement and the roads are small and cramped and there's not a lot of space to move around. The best example is if you've ever been to York and you've been down the Shambles, which is an original medieval street. Um, it's very narrow with overhanging buildings and that can give you a very good idea of what a medieval town was like. So you've got these towns growing for a number of different reasons. What's the impact that has? Well, as we've said, it creates more tax revenue for the crown. It leads to a centralization of government because it's easier to control people if they're all in one small area. But socially, it leads to the rise of a new class, the Burgesses. Now, we know these people exist because they are in the Doomsday Book. They are counted, and we can see how many there are. And the key thing about a Burgess is this. They're not a nobleman. They are a commoner, if you like. They don't own land, but they are well off. They're the first example of this, this blurring between the landed classes of the knights and the barons and the low-born classes, if you like. Now, the non-land-holding Anglo-Saxons down here, you now get this class arising in the towns who are not landowners but who have legal responsibilities, administrative responsibilities to the shire, to the hundred, to running the business of the town based purely on their economic value. And this right here is basically the birth of your middle classes. And that's going to become much, much more important later in the medieval period. And I'd just like you to file that away as something that you're going to be able to use in your theme study on power and the people. Okay? But at this stage, all you need to know is you get an opportunity for people who are not of noble birth to advance themselves socially and economically in the towns through trade. So there you are. Overall, that's everything. 
What do you need to remember about the growth of towns? They grow because the king encourages it. He encourages it because it brings in tax revenue. They grow around other developments, such as castles, cathedrals, and markets. And they grow because of trade. The wool trade, import, export, salt trade, metal work, and markets. The last thing to say about towns is about how the trade is organized. And that is to do with guilds. Now, the guild becomes a much more important entity, a much more important organization later in the medieval period. But the idea is born here. When you bring all the craftspeople together in a single town, you get them to band together and they basically form a professional association so all of the weavers all of the butchers all of the fishmongers all of them come together to share knowledge share practice and to guard their little monopoly so if you are a fishmonger and you need to learn how to gut fish only the guild can teach you how to do it safely if you are a smith and you need to know how to work lead to make decent lead for roofing only the guild of lead workers can show you how to do that and this again I would suggest is another little example of the people who are involved in the work starting to exert some control over their destiny not that important during the Norman period, but certainly will become important later on. So it's an important feature to remember, but it's more a case of significance, as in importance over time, than important to the Norman period itself. And with that last little thought thrown in at the end there, I think that's everything. So thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams.